Good God, for this morning, thank you that we can be here and hear from your word. I pray that I would step out of the way and that, that your Holy Spirit would do what only he can do, would take the information in our head and send it down to our hearts and the two would be in sync and that we'd have a better understanding of what it means to be uh, fully devoted followers of, of you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> we, uh, food is a very important part of our life, isn't it? Not just for nourishment. There we go. I thought I had another pair already up there. Um, <clears throat> not just for nourishment, but also to communicate life. And, you know, it's the one room in the house where we all kind of come together and ask the question, so how's it going? You know, in the living room, oftentimes we're watching TV or listening to music. In the bedrooms, we go to sleep. And, well, we know what we do in the bathroom. And, and uh, the dining room is the one place in the kitchen where we come together and talk about kind of things that are going on in our life. You can tell a lot about a family, by the way, about uh, just by sitting at their dinner table with them and hearing of the conversation. In fact, one time I was at these people's house, this was years ago, and he was uh, the chairman of the elder board in his church. And we were sitting there around a dinner table, and his wife is talking, and I don't know what she was saying, but she was telling a story. And then her husband looked at her and he said, that's enough. And she stopped talking and didn't talk the rest of the meal. I'm like, okay. I looked at Claudia and she's like, don't you ever try that. <laughs> but it gave me kind of an idea of uh, what things are like, the culture in their house. And in fact, when we do training, we talk about hidden rules, and we all have rules um, that we had at the dinner table growing up. Maybe they were hidden in the sense that nobody kind of sat down before the meal and said, okay, let's go over all the things that we can or can't do. Um, but maybe somewhere along the line they were spoken, and after a while, you knew when you broke the hidden rules as a child because your parent looked at you and gave you that look. And so what I'd like to do is give you an opportunity to share some of, the, some of the rules that you had at your house around the dinner table. So if you raise your hand, I'll come along with the microphone and have a few people share. You don't complain about what's set in front of you. You eat it. Yeah, shut up and be quiet. All right, yes. Not allowed to sing. Not allowed to sing. Yeah, at my house, my sister used to sing, and they would say you would grow horns if you would sing. And one time she just started crying because she was afraid that she was going to grow horns. Yeah, anybody else? The teens are like, oh, this is my chance. Yeah. Any, any crazy things that your family does around the dinner table? Anybody else? Moving down here. Rules that you had at the dinner table or maybe still do. No phones or pets at the table. No phones or pets? Okay. No, no phones or pets. See, I appreciated the dog because he helped eat the peas, right? You got to have the dog there. All right. Anybody else? Moving back here. Uh-oh. Well, this isn't one we had growing up, but now that we have our own son, uh, he likes to put his feet up on the table from the high chair, and we tell him, no feet where you eat. <laughs> okay, one more. Anybody else back here? If you complained about the mashed potatoes, you had to wash the dishes. Uh, <clears throat> so you can complain about everything else, just not the mashed potatoes. Right? Yeah, we all have had them, right? Um, no, no burping at the table, right? Um, I've heard things like, nobody eats until dad eats. Um, I heard nobody gets up from the table until a dad gets up from the table, and all kinds of things. And you know, 
in our culture today, I guess I don't need this, do I? <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> hey, you take what you get, right? In our culture today, there's kind of a lamenting about the dinner table. Um, there's people who have written about the fact that, that we no longer gather at the dinner table and ask the question, how was your day? Sometimes we're at the dinner table, but everybody's on their phones. And there's, by the way, there's some millennials that will actually play this little game where um, the, t- the cell phones have to stay in a, in a basket outside the dining room. Or when they go out to eat, all the, t- all the phones go in the center, and the first person to look at their phone has to buy the meal. Because there's something about food and conversation. Even in our church, have you noticed that whenever we want to talk about something church-wide or, or that impacts our culture, we do it around a meal, either breakfast or lunch. If you want to know about what's going on in a church and you're new, you can come and, uh, and meet after church and have pizza and hear about our culture. There's two anthropologists, two of which uh, I don't know how to say their name. You'll see it at the end, who have written a book about this. And here's what they say. They say, meals are cultural sites where members of different generations and genders come to learn, reinforce, undermine, or transform each other's way of acting, thinking, and feeling in the world. Sometimes to cajoling, begging, probing, praising, bargaining, directing, ignoring all those words at your dinner table, right? Um, or otherwise interacting with one another in the course of nourishing one's body. The practices orient children both to mealtime comportment as behavior and to more encompassing dispositions expected of socially differentiated members. Though accentuated at feast and ritual occasions, here's, the, here's the, the main point I want you to hear is cultural apprenticeship and language socialization actually accrue and are given in the shape, or given shape in the give and take of everyday mealtime interactions. And see, and you thought you were just coming to eat dinner. Um, and there's some, there's some truth there, uh, and there's definitely no doubt about it. Um, you know, some of that has changed as, as culture has changed, and families don't gather as often as they used to around the meal. <clears throat> um, you know, for millennia, eating together has had a significant role in our lives and, and how we've shaped culture. It's where we come together and we share life. And some cultures, by the way, they still do everything over a meal. If you're going to um, get hired, it's over a meal. If you're going to get fired, it's over a meal. If you're going to go out with someone, you do it over a meal. If you're going to break up with them, teens, you don't do it over text. You do it over a meal. And everything happens in the context of a meal. You would think, by the way, and just just kind of where I live in that whole, not this section of Ruth or the other, that all of life is around a meal because one time I counted I counted, I don't have the exact number, but I think there were 50 restaurants on Route 30 by the time you hit the Red Lobster until you get to the Olive Garden. And uh, <clears throat> meals are a very important part of our culture. In fact, it, it, it's the same time, uh, same way in the life of Christ. The book of Luke is very interesting in that Luke is, is, is taking us on a journey of who Jesus is and how he interacts with, with people and culture. And in the book of Luke, he shares 10 different times when teaching happened in the context of a meal. The first one is the one we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles and like to open up to Luke chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 27 to 32. And this, this context of a meal is the basis of our conversation both this morning and next Sunday as well. So for Tim, I did all the hard work already, and all he's got to do is just, just come next week and follow suit. Uh, in this passage, by the way, in Luke chapter 5, 
verses 27 to 32, we see Jesus using a meal as the context for an interaction with the Pharisees, where he shares a pretty significant shift of culture, both spiritually and socially. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 5. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So in this context, you see Jesus calling Levi. Now the name of him would be Matthew. And in fact, we have a picture of uh, Levi. that It took me a while to find it, but I found an actual picture of Levi. There you go. <clears throat> and uh, so a little bit about tax collectors. You know, they worked for the Romans. Um, the Romans didn't want the dirty job of collecting the taxes, so they would hire Jewish people to do that. And you would actually bid for the job and, and pay up front what the tax would be for the year, and then your job all the next year was to collect enough money to recoup your costs and make a profit. Uh, there were two types of tax collectors. There were the chief tax collectors. That was someone like Zacchaeus. And then there were the other people, kind of the, the thugs of the tax collectors. Um, another word, they would, they would be called as, as toll collectors because they would set up toll booths, just like when you go through the turnpike and you pay your toll, except they could set up wherever they wanted to go. And some say, some scholars say, they would look for crowds of people, and then in order for you to leave that crowd, plop their little toll booth there. As you can imagine, among the Jews, they were hated, they were despised. Um, they were grouped often with, um, with, with the phrase, tax collectors and sinners. Um, they were grouped culturally, socially with murderers and robbers. In fact, to avoid loss, it was okay to deceive a tax collector. The Pharisees said, it's okay if you're deceiving a tax collector because they were known as... Um, as unbelievers or as liars. Um, their word had no value, so they couldn't, um, they couldn't speak in court. They couldn't have any kind of political office. They were kind of the, the low life, but very wealthy low life, and <clears throat> made a lot of money. So describe this, let's describe this scene together. It's Jesus is there, and he's, and he's teaching everybody, and he's, he's by the Sea of Galilee, and, uh, and I don't know, I'm just going to, can I just, uh, you know, kind of read into the text a little bit? So they're all there, and Jesus is teaching, and crowds are gathering like they always did around Jesus. And, you know, Levi looks at him, he's like, oh, this is my chance. And he just gets his little toll booth, and he sets it up, and he sits there, and he's got his, he's got his body men. You ever watch Utopia? Anybody ever watch Utopia? You know Kevin, the big polar bear? Yeah, you know Kevin, the big polar bear with Mr. Big, right? Isn't that his name, Kevin? Yeah, that's the kind of people that stood by the toll booth, you know, and... Uh, and there's a long line. Everybody's leaving like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You know, whatever they're carrying, he could tax it. He could tax it if you, were, if you had an animal by your side. He could tax it if you, uh, you know, if you had your Ford or if you had your Rolls Royce. It didn't matter. And whatever you had on you, he could, ta- he could just tax you just because he wanted to tax you, and which is why they were hated. And so just to picture the line, you know, this guy comes up and he's like, I already paid tax on this bird. This is dinner. Like, nope, nope, you're going to pay me another 5%. But I, I, Kevin, and he goes, you ever watch Princess Pride? You know, he says, you know, we're going to call the boot squad. And the big guy says, I am the boot squad. 
You know, I mean, that's what they would do. The Bruce Squad would just stand there and say, and then they would have to, they would have to pay up. Sometimes they would shake them upside down until the money fell their pockets. I'm just kidding, kids. I just, that just sounds like a fun thing to say, but a bad metaphor, uh, bad imagery. And, and so imagine, like, you know, Jesus is part of the crowd. So, you know, the guy before him, and he's frustrated, and he looks back at Jesus, and he's complaining. It's like, man, this guy just keeps stealing all of our money. And the guy behind Jesus is nervous because he has no money. And he doesn't know what they're going to do. They're going to take his land. They're going to beat him up. What are they going to do? But he has no money. And he's thinking to himself, good Lord in heaven, I hope you help me this day. Not realizing that good Lord in heaven might have been right in front of him. And Jesus comes up to him. And it's Jesus' turn. And Jesus kind of just takes his glasses off. Actually, he didn't have glasses. But for emphasis sake, he looks at him and he says, follow me. Now, you've got to understand that word, follow me. It wasn't like, Hey, man, what you doing today? You want to have some fun? Why don't you follow me? It actually, if, if you look at the Greek word, the tense, it has the idea of making a decision that's going to be a habit in your life for the rest of your life. So he wasn't saying, hey, I don't know if you have plans tonight, but you want to follow me. What he's saying is, I want you to stop everything you're doing and to follow me, and I want you to do it every single day of your life for the rest of your life. It's very intriguing because you know what Levi does, right? He follows him. Imagine that. I, don't, I mean, it looks like he just got up and left everything. I don't know if the two, you know, the brute squad's like, oh, man, what are we doing? And, you know, <clears throat> the money's left there, and the guy behind me is like, God answered my prayer, you know, because Levi just gets up, and he starts following Jesus. By the way, very similar to how Peter, Andrew, James, and John did. It says that when Jesus called them, they just dropped their nets and followed him. Can you imagine, by the way, quick sidebar, this is the point of this, of this talk today, but can you imagine if we had that kind of obedience when God says to us, follow me, and what he means is not just follow me today or tomorrow or next week or next year, but the idea of the language would be create a new habit in your life that every single day you are following me. Can you imagine if Chuck Holt had that kind of daily response to God that Levi did, but I just said, okay, I'll let everything go. I'll just drop everything and follow you. That's kind of a whole different point, but uh, I think it, it, it uh, begs to be made. Um, <clears throat> so Levi gets up, and he just follows him, leaves everything there, and uh, very intriguing thing is everybody's watching saying, wow, okay, this, this is kind of interesting. By the way, if I was one of the disciples already, if I was Peter, Andrew, James, and John, I would have said, um, why, why would you ask, ask a tax collector to follow us? You know, now we're going to have a bad reputation. Now, no one's going to like us now. I mean, now we have this, but Jesus sees inside him something that nobody else sees. And he says, follow him. And at that moment, Levi follows him. Then you get to verse 29. Verse 29 says, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Now, this, the context here isn't that Levi said, hey, why don't you come over for dinner and all my friends will come over and we'll just kind of have a great time because now you're a good buddy of mine. But there's actually a lot more going on there. And in order to help you understand that, I'm going to show you a couple of slides that explain two things that were happening in Jesus' day. One was something called the, the, the Greco-Roman Symposium. And it wasn't a symposium which we think today, but it was an opportunity for, for people of a certain status to get together and, um, and have a meal together, 
and then have a talk time. They would bring in a, a guest, kind of an expert, and have a Q&A, and then often it would end in just kind of an extended period of, of drinking and partying and all kinds of bad stuff um, that would go on that we won't explain because there's no junior church today. Uh, but, uh, but that was kind of this idea of a symposium, and, and that's what's going on behind his, this and many of the meal stories that Jesus is talking about. But what's also going on behind this is the idea of what they call the table fellowship, um, that, the, that, the, that the Pharisees in Jesus' time had a table fellowship, and that was, um, it was about making a spiritual and social statement about yourself and about your guests. By the way, the, the Pharisees had 341 rulings that they imposed on people in addition to the law. 229 of them were related to this concept of table fellowship. Some scholars then say that that's why the Pharisees could be considered like an eating club. Because so much of the spiritual and the cultural and the social significance of the day occurred in the context of this table fellowship. So imagine, uh, imagine what's going on here again. Jesus is invited to this symposium of, uh, by Levi. And think of all the people there. You know, they were the other tax collectors. They were the, um, there might have been little, you know, discussions about the, uh, who had the best thugs are us, right? Where you can get people to come and just kind of, you know, get the money out of people if they have to by violence. Maybe there was a little discussion about, you know, top 10 ways to fudge your books. Uh, so the Romans don't see exactly how much money you collected and you can keep what you have to pay every year low. Um, perhaps there was conversation about um, the best ways to do loan sharking. Right, Because people don't have money, let's give them a loan. And then ultimately, we'll end up uh, owning their property. And these are all the kind of people. They were the kind of people that honestly, if, if you wanted to hang around somebody wholesome at night, probably shouldn't be your crowd. So it's intriguing that a couple of things are happening. That they invite Jesus because he's now the guest of honor. He's the one that's going to sit there and then everybody's going to do a Q&A. It's Jesus. This is my, can you imagine? Hey, this is my Levi talking. Hey, everybody, just want to just get started. Um, this is my buddy. You might have, you might have heard about him, um, Jesus. You know, and they're like, uh. So what intrigues me is not only did Jesus show up, was he invited, but that he showed up and that everybody seemed to be okay with that. Kind of interesting that they didn't say, uh, no, 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 not Jesus. Does he know what we're going to do the rest of the night? You know, Jesus can't be here. And that's kind of the t- context of what's going on. So um, they, uh, they have the meal, and there's this question. And then at some point, the Pharisees say to Jesus' disciples, you can see in the text there, why, why does Jesus eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Like, what, like why would he do something like that? Now, to order to understand, you know, why they're so upset about this, you have to understand a little bit more about the table fellowship of the Pharisees. Because for the, for the Pharisees, um, in order to come to the table, you had to have a special relationship with God. You had to be ceremonial clean. The food had to be ceremonial clean. And you had to go through all these rituals even to be able to sit down or, or lie down, actually, at the table. In fact, in many ways, the people around the table were a bound, kind of a boundary of who would be accepted by God. They were the same kind of people that would be at the temple. And so if you had any kind of physical deformity, or you had a kind of emotional issue, or you had any kind of spiritual problem, or you had any kind of anything, 
not only would you not be allowed to come to the temple, but you wouldn't be allowed to be at the table. It would sort of be like if we all went out to eat after church, and we all happened to go to the same restaurant. And you saw a group of people like, oh, oh, look, there's the Peterson. Let's go hang out with them. And then all of a sudden, oh, no, like, yeah, no, I can't, like, because I'm not as, as holy as they are. I'm not as godly. I'm not as favored by God. I'm not as spiritual. I'm not as, frankly, I'm not as good, so I can't even be at that table. And so imagine, the, you know, the Pharisees thinking about this content, looking at Jesus, like, what in the world is he doing? They would have respected him as a teacher of the law. They would have respected Jesus as a religious, religious leader, and he certainly knew right from wrong. So why was he hanging out, eating and drinking with people who would not be people that God would want to be part of his family, that God would want to give his blessing to? And not only the spiritual significance of this, but also the uh, social significance, because at these, um, these table fellowships, you would, you would invite people that had, that had enough wealth that they could in turn reciprocate and invite you to theirs. So you wouldn't invite somebody that didn't have the means to throw also a great banquet and have you be there. It was a very status symbol in society. So it was only for the elite, only for people that had enough money to do it. So for the Pharisees, you know, this table fellowship, when they go there, they understand this symposium thing, but they kind of had this table fellowship where it was much more spiritual, much more godly, and you had to have, be of a certain level spiritually to be there, and you also had to have a certain level of social status to be there. And so they look at Jesus, and they see him breaking both of these, and they're frustrated. They see him breaking both of these, so they say, why would Jesus do this? He knows right from wrong. Why would he do this? And it's interesting, if we look at the text, Jesus responds to them. Jesus answers them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I've got to be honest with you before we go on that if I was there, I would have been just like the Pharisees. You know, I'm, a, I'm what, I, what I call a recovering legalist, you know, and I would have been like, uh, you know, I grew up learning that you don't smoke or chew or hang with those that do, right? I grew up, bad company corrupts good character. I grew up, birds of a feather flock together. You know, and all those things deep entrenched me. And I would have been like, yeah, I don't know why he is. Could we hang out with you guys instead? Because we've got to make a statement here that I'm not sure we're following the wrong, right person. I probably, if I'd be honest, would have been right where they are. Would have been disgusted at the spiritual, at the lack of caring the lack of value that was put on for spiritual and, um, and social boundaries. And yet Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Um, <clears throat> what's going on behind this? Jesus says, not, what, he, what he doesn't mean is, by the way, you know, it's um, just, just physical health. In fact, he's, he's kind of going back and saying, didn't I tell you this? in our words, a couple chapters earlier. You know, but didn't I tell you this when I stood up in a temple and I said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Didn't I tell you that that's what I was all about? 
And now, just like I have done through this series that we've talked about, and I will continue to do, I'm demonstrating you how that's going to work. Jesus is modeling that, that he came, or why he came, and that he truly was a friend of sinners. In fact, what he does is he turns the cultural you know, understanding, of, especially in the context of the meal table, totally upside down. And Jesus says this, I've come to give everyone access to God. And that's such a simple phrase, right? We can say it, back. you could probably repeat it. Don't look up there. Say, Jesus came to give. Yeah, it's so simple. It's so simple that oftentimes we overlook it. Jesus came to give everyone access to God. I remember one time, a number of years ago, when I first came here, and I was at a church, and uh, somebody came up to me after I spoke, and they meant well. They really did mean well, and they said this to me. We don't want those kind, talking about people in the community, we don't want those kind in our church. You know, that sounds like a Pharisee. I've been there, so I'm a recovering Pharisee. Sounds like a Pharisee, you know. Um, Jesus came so everyone can access to God. It didn't matter if you had, you know, any kind of physical, emotional, spiritual, intellectual, financial, you know, um, relational problems, it didn't matter. Every single person has access to God. That was a huge cultural shift. And it was kind of in the face of the Pharisees' teaching. And so I am here because these people, these people have the same access to God as you do. And not only the spiritual significance of what Jesus said and what he did, but also the social significance. As that he came to befriend sinners and outcasts. What I find it very interesting is, is Jesus didn't just say, I've come for the lost, I've come for tax collectors, and I've come for sinners. So, hey guys, come on to church because you can come in. And, and uh, if you, you don't want to come into church, then I'll meet you before or afterwards. And no, he went to where they were. I've had some opportunities to do that in the last 11 years, which has kind of been a little intriguing. My favorite one, if you call these favorite, was I went to a rave party for a teenager who had, uh, who had died. And he was in a band, and all of his buddies in the band want to put on a, a, well, I would say concert, but it really wasn't a concert. Basically, there's a hundred and so teenagers there, and they, the bands took turns playing, and I couldn't understand any word they said except the swear words. They were the only words that I understand that came out of their mouth when they're singing. And at one point, a guy got up there, and he goes, we don't need authority. We don't need government. We don't need religion. We just need ourselves. And it was like, ah. You know, and in between bands, they'd go out, and they would smoke some stuff that they shouldn't smoke, and they would come back in. And I'm there, and I'm like, got to love my job. And uh, right after, by the way, when they said, we don't need religion, and then the bands, and then the guy that's running the whole thing gets up and says, hey, we'd like to invite so-and-so's pastor to come up and speak. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, oh, yeah. But, you know, <clears throat> I felt uncomfortable. I felt uncomfortable. I was honored to be there, but I felt uncomfortable. And, and I'm standing there thinking, I think this, hear me out, okay, don't, don't, don't stone me here. I think this is where Jesus would be. Because he would look at these people, not that he would participate, because if we know in this you know, passage, and I'm going to say in a second, he didn't come in and say, hey, party time, you know, and just like lose who he was. Because he says that I've come, let's just say that now, he says that I, I've come not to call righteous, 
but sinners to repentance. A very intentional strategy. All right, he built relationships with people in order for them to know who he was. And so I'm standing there at this rave, I guess they call it, um, and I had bad hearing loss. You know, I had bad hearing then. Now it's even worse now. And I thought to myself, this is where Jesus would be. You know, he would love them for who they are. He would care about them. He wouldn't judge them. He would say, these are the people that need me the most. He went to church, but most of his context with, with the Pharisees was antagonistic. Even in this example, yet he finds himself wanting to be in the company of those that the religious system of the day would have ostracized and said, we don't have no, no desire to be around you, and you have no place in what we're doing. And uh, so the spiritual significance and the social significance. And so then I ask myself this question for the church today, for the believer today, for Chuck Holt today. You know, spiritually, what kind of culture am I creating? A culture that says, you know, you have to fit a certain mold. As a church, you have to be a certain way. You have to do it a certain way or God won't love you. I know for some of you, you never came from that background. You're like, that sounds crazy. I'm telling you, that was so deep entrenched in me that I still struggle with trying to please God. I still struggle with seeing God as a tally sheet up in the air like, oh, oh, you didn't have devotions? Then you must not have devotion. You see the difference there? And I heard that on the radio this morning coming in. Huh? See that? Perfect. That's why you on the radio. Um, and uh, quick sidebar. Where am I at? Oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and am I trying to create that kind of spirituality that has certain rituals that you have to perform in order to have good standing in God's eyes? Most of us would intellectually say, no, no, that's not true. We've heard enough sermons about it. We've read up with the Bible. But do we live that way? And all socially, are we willing to go where people who are hurting are? People who are oppressed? People who are blind, people who are prisoners, people who are tax collectors and sinners, are we willing to come alongside them and build a relation with them so they can know who God is? So they can experience the same Jesus that Levi experienced, that we've experienced, and to live in repentance. The best way to end this, actually, is to use Levi's words himself. Because Levi um, was Matthew, and he wrote one of the Gospels. And when he tells this story, he adds a sentence that Luke doesn't include. He says that Jesus, when he said, it's not the healthy need of the doctor, but the sick, he said this to them, learn what it means, where it says, and he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6. learn what it means where it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so that's the significance for me today, is am I going to be about mercy or about sacrifice? You know what? The Pharisee in me loves sacrifice, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it in you as well, if you'd be honest? Sacrifice financially for the Lord. You sacrificed your time, maybe your sleep for the Lord, and came in this morning. You'll sacrifice by coming to the day of caring, right? Every one of you and helping out. Yeah. You'll sacrifice by coming to our bank and giving lots of money. Sorry, just a shameless plug. Um, but all through our Christian lives, we sacrifice for God. And we have another, another story, by the way, that's centered around a meal is we have older prodigal son syndrome where we say, I have done everything in your name. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, that's not what I desire. What I desire is mercy. What I desire is looking at the world through my eyes, looking at humanity through my lens. Jesus came 
to be a friend of sinners. And this is a very real example of where he stood in opposition and a sharp contrast to the religious people of the day. And I wonder for me, and I wonder for you, in what way is God asking you to potentially stand in sharp contrast to the religious system of this day? In what way, and it'd be different for every one of us, is God challenging you and me to show mercy, to come alongside and be known as somebody who hangs out, who befriends, who cares about tax collectors and sinners? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for caring about Levi, because I don't know if I was you in that situation, if I would have done it. I probably would have passed him by as somebody that I just need to stay far away from. Yet in your infinite wisdom, God, your son looked at Levi and saw something that probably nobody else there saw as a human in need of a Savior, as somebody that needed to be shown mercy. And God, through this whole story, we see Jesus interacting with people that the Pharisees were frustrated with and bothered with and said, why would he eat and drink with these kind of people? God, I hope in my life, in the life of everyone in this church this morning, I hope that somebody would say to me, why does Chuck eat and drink with such people? I hope that people can save Grace Point Church. Why do they hang out and befriend people that society has cast out? Because when we do that, God, when we show mercy and not just sacrifice, we're at the heart of who you are and the heart of what your son demonstrated his time on earth. God, I pray the significance of what Jesus did in this context so many thousand years ago would penetrate each one of us today and our response would be, we want to do something significant for you. In Jesus' name, amen.